and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another great episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach, and I founded a company called Strong Skills. At Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we're facilitators and coaches, and we work in the corporate world and in the sports world, and we believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. One of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind, and the teachings come from my book, which came out last October. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase. And if you like learning through your ears and you are listening to a podcast, so I'm going to assume that you enjoy listening via audio, you can actually listen to the book via Audible. So Audible is a great platform where you can download books and you can actually listen to me narrating Shift Your Mind. So thanks to all of you who have already purchased the book, and I've been overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten from those that are reading it on their Kindle or listening to it on Audible or getting the hard copy, which is how I like to read most of my books as well. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's episode or any of our previous conversations, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really does help us expand our reach. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Annalie Schmidl serves as Vice President of Player Development for the Philadelphia 76ers. And Annalie is responsible for creating, managing, and overseeing the holistic development and implementation of programs that support the professional and personal growth of 76ers players, staff, and their families. Prior to joining the Sixers, Annalie was a member of the Oakland Raiders player engagement staff, 
while responsible for strategy, planning, oversight, and execution of player development. Annalee was involved with their Rookie Academy, their Raiders Family Boot Camp, and she wore many, many hats for the Raiders. And she also specialized in an innovative programming and the creation of various initiatives for the continued development of both current and former players that were on the roster with the Raiders. At the end of the day, you're going to learn that Annalie loves to serve people. And we're going to get into whether she likes doing that in the shadows or out front. I think you're going to learn quickly that Annalie really does embody this notion of servant leadership and this idea of service. And it's why she does what she does. And prior to joining the Raiders, she worked as an instructor and researcher at the University of Florida, where she had an amazing laboratory to learn and to help athletes at the University of Florida. She has her doctorate degree earning a PhD in sports communication. And we're going to talk about how language has impacted her and how she interacts with the world. At the end of the day, you're going to love Annalie because she is somebody who thinks deeply and cares deeply about the people she serves. And she's quick to point out that as long as she cares about the people she serves, she's going to do this for as long as she possibly can. She wants to make an impact. She wants to make a difference. And she loves working with human beings. So this conversation is rich. It is thorough. It is deep. We talk about Annalise's upbringing in Germany. And we talk about some deep, deep stuff. So uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation. I know I did. So here is Annalie. Annalie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Danielle Cantor deserves a shout out. She's the one who connected the two of us. And she said right away, she said, oh, you, you have to talk to Annalie. And so did some research on you. And then we had a, a great conversation a little while back. And here we are. So excited to dive in with you. And before we even dive into your story and your journey and the work that you do, you said something right before we started to record where you said, I just love to celebrate other people. Where, where does that come from for you? I think I've just always known that in order to kind of get to where we need to be, it kind of takes the full tribe, right? And it's interesting because I tend to think that I have a fairly small circle, but at the same time, I also know that like every interaction, every relationship that I've built across my career and even before that has shaped me into who I am and where I where I am and where I'm going. And so for me, it's important to recognize the people that, you know, have shaped me in my personal life, but also my professional life. And to remind myself that there's a lot of lessons that I've learned from other people, from their experiences, from our interactions together. And Danielle is a perfect example, right? Like her and I met uh, through Elton Brand actually, and um, clicked kind of right away and um, have had a lot of conversations with her. And she's, she's an amazing resource to me and just a, woman that I respect a lot in this industry and one that celebrates other people. And I think we connected based on, on that a lot. Um, and yeah, so for me, it's important to recognize the people that help you get to where you are and to understand that uh, even though this is a competitive industry and sports in general are competitive and sometimes it's a lonely industry in that sense, it's important to surround yourself with really good people and um, to also tell them that they've made an impact in your life. That's really important. We all like to hear it. And so uh, for me, that's definitely one of those things I try to do on a daily basis is just remind people that um, they're meaningful and impactful. Would you rather be in the shadows or in the spotlight? 
I would rather be behind the scenes, I'll be honest. I love to help other people kind of find their spotlight. Um, and I like to make sure that they're all good. Um, but I prefer sort of the behind the scenes part. Does that ever hold you back? I don't think it's held me back because I'll do it when I have to. Um, but again, it does. I try to navigate everything in a way that I can strategically place myself in the background and let other people kind of shine. Um, and it's interesting because when I took this job with the Sixers, a lot of my first few weeks were, can you be on this podcast? Can you talk to this news channel? And I was like, I really don't want to do this. I don't, I just want to get to work. And at the same time, I understood that me getting this particular role was groundbreaking in a sense, because I was a one of the first females in an executive type position in the MBA. And so it was uncomfortable, I would say, and I, but I also understood why I needed to do it. So I wouldn't say it's helped me back, but it's definitely also taught me ways to manipulate getting um, more in the background and letting other people shine. It's interesting you brought up being a, a female executive. Do you find that women are more comfortable in the shadows? Um, and men are more comfortable in the spotlight, or is that a, a generalization? Hmm, that's an excellent question. I think generally, because women are so nurturing, it comes as like a second nature for us to let other people, us let us take care of something and let other people take the spotlight. Um, I would say that's not necessarily a, a generalization. I do think that comes very easy to us. Um, in this environment, in sports particularly, and as an executive, I think it's hard to say because there aren't as many women, but the women that are here, um, they actually are pretty good about, you know, being trailblazers and, and being appreciative and taking the spotlight when needed. But I do think, generally speaking, all of us are a little bit more like, yeah, we don't want all of the fanfare, all of that. We would rather just like get to work. And I think part of that comes from our entire careers, we've just been like, okay, if I grind, if I just show my value, I'll get to where I want to be. So let me just put my head down and like all this outside noise doesn't matter. So for the longest time, I think when you're a female exec or a female in sports, you just have blinders on and you're just like, okay, I'm just going to focus and it doesn't matter what people are saying. So being in the spotlight has never been like a driving force. It's just like, I want to get there. So I think it's more of that. So we're talking and you're on a podcast. So here you are doing the thing where I am going to hopefully shine a giant spotlight on you over the next hour. As, as you think about that, what comes up for you? What, how do you think about shining and, and sharing yourself when the spotlight is on you? I mean, first of all, it's a huge privilege, right? It's a privilege in terms of being in this position that I am and getting to share my story. It's a privilege, like speaking with you and learning from you. I've listened to your podcast. Your guests are amazing. But so there's definitely a factor inside of me where I'm like, okay, Brian, like, are you sure that you want me on this podcast? Um, and so, yes, there were moments where I've said like, maybe I won't do this, like let other people do this. This is, you know, maybe not my thing. Um, and at the same time, again, it's an honor and a privilege to, to speak to you. And I've kind of 
taken this more in my in my brain as a learning opportunity for me because I get to talk to you and I get to shine a spotlight on other people that have helped me along the way. So it's been I've reframed it in my brain a little bit more um, like that as opposed to saying this is a spotlight for me. Yeah, what causes you to say yes? Uh, Danielle, honestly, <laughs> she was like, you, you should really do this. It's great. So that's what um, is, I guess, a little bit of motivation from other people, right? Like other people, I think oftentimes see something in you that maybe you yourself can't see. And um, you have to trust that little tribe that you built. And when they say, hey, this is a good opportunity, or it's important that you share your story, and it's important that you share your struggle with other people, because you will help other people. Um, I think that goes a long way. You mentioned tribe a lot over the last few minutes, and it's not lost on me that there's a little subtle accent that you have. And so I'm so curious about your German upbringing and if that culture comes out inside of you while you navigate the United States uh, and, and navigate Philadelphia. So um, talk about Germany and growing up there and how that helps shape who you are today. Yeah, so I spent my first 16 years in Germany and then 16, 17 years in the U.S. now. So I spent half my life um, in Europe and half my life in the U.S. And I would, I mean, I definitely have to say being German is a big part of who I am. You know, the first 16 years of your life are pretty important. And so I, aside from the accent, there's a lot of things that I do that I think are just ingrained in me because I grew up in Europe and because I grew up in Germany and have German family and everybody is still back home. Um, so I have deep roots, I would say, back in Europe and in Germany particularly. So yes, there's the way I approach things, the way I think about things is at times very, very German. But because I've now spent half my life also in the US, a lot of times it feels like I'm not American, but I'm also not just German. So I'm sort of in this like weird middle space where I can float in and out of both cultures really well. And obviously Germany and the US are not that different um, in a lot of things, but yes, a sort of the tenacity and routines are important to me and orderly and all of those like stereotypical things you hear about Germans, 1000% are a part of who I am. Um, same thing with kind of like this tribe mentality and, and um, being grateful for a support system. I do think that's very German in that sense. What are the similarities and what are the differences? Um, well, I think, you know, like Germany and the U.S. being both like first world countries, driven countries, high economic power countries, um, those are similarities that are easy, right? The culture shock for me moving to the United States wasn't as great because I listened to the same music. I, you know, ate very similar foods. Um, I, I, the pop culture was very different. The way we dress is very different. Um, sports, in a sense, were different. Uh, the, the, the appreciation and importance in culture uh, regarding sports is really high in both countries. And then there's, of course, like stark differences, like politically speaking, um, there's a lot there. Um, I think when I first moved to the US, I mean, I was 16 at the time. So in Germany at 16, you get to do a lot more than you do in the United States. So that was an interesting sort of struggle for me at the time, because in Germany, I kind of felt like an adult and I came back here and it was not that. Um, 
and then of course just the entire sports system from like you know high school to college um club sports versus school sports there's so many differences and so many things that i had to learn and then just culturally i think germans are a little bit more reserved at the front end like it takes us a lot longer to build trust and we um we place more value on really getting to know people before we get our let our guard down but then once you're in you're kind of in it's not a superficial relationship in any stretch of imagination and I always felt like the United States is a great place to come to as a tourist or as a foreign exchange student like I did because everybody's so open and wants to know you and is welcoming and but it's much harder to form like really deep relationships in that regard so those are I think some of the things that come to mind right away we're going to talk about social justice and being in the NBA and what that's been like the last year and a half with everything going on in our, our country, but you're from Germany and Germany's got a history that is not always pretty and beautiful. Um, I'll call it a black eye or whatever you want to call it. Um, being raised there, how did that play a role in your education and how you think about justice and equality and how you see the world from a humanity standpoint? Yeah. It's an excellent question. I'm really glad that you asked me that question because I do think growing up um, in Germany at the time um, that I did, our history plays such an important factor. And it's this thing that really gets drilled into your entire education, right? Like you learn about it from a very young age and you continue to learn about it, honestly, until you leave school. And it was very much in the forefront of everything like that we've been taught. Um, and I, I'll be honest, you know, Germany at the time when I grew up there wasn't the most diverse country. I mean, um, my school was white and maybe we had a few immigrants from Turkey or Italy, but I, I think the first time, um, honestly, that I, I was around people of other colors was through sports. Like when we would compete at bigger cities, like that was the first time, but like where I grew up pretty white. And at the same time, like I was raised in such a accepting, loving way. And maybe in part because our history was pretty bad and everybody reminds you of that. Um, but that by the time I got to the United States and all of the multicultural things were happening, but also racial injustices. And I've seen the last 16 years that I've lived here. It's a really interesting dynamic for me because I, I see Germany and they've regressed a little bit, I'll be honest, um, when it comes to political uh, right wing um, versus left wing. Um, it, it's really sad to see because Germany should know better. And it, it makes me sad to see that political climate change a little bit, um, especially when it comes to refugees. But at the same time, it um, being in the US and seeing it so much at the forefront, it's devastating, right? And so it's a large part of what I, love about sports and the NBA is that we're trying to be on the forefront. It's what I love about our players is that they are willing to take a stance and to say, this is not okay. Um, but we have a long way to go and this country has a long way to go. Um, and I wouldn't say that necessarily Americans aren't aware of what it's happening and what is happening. But at the same time, I also, I went through high school here and college here. It wasn't the history of the US as it relates to race relations isn't nearly as at the forefront as it is in Germany. And I do think that's a major difference and um, personally has helped me as we've navigated the last you know, two years. 
Talk about the education there as it relates to the Holocaust and how much it is educated and talked about what what happened and what's possible if things are left unchecked. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like I said, I mean, I, I couldn't tell you the first time that we talked about it in school, but it had to have been within the first, you know, three years of going school so like elementary school um really and you talk about it in history class every single year it doesn't matter like you talk about other things of course but there's a pretty large portion of your history class that talks about the holocaust holocaust and and germany's involvement in all of the wars and um the current climate and even in um the amount of field trips that you take germany is a big field trip country when it comes to education um so you really do go to all the places whether it's a concentration camp whether you go to the capital um whether you go to museums it's a huge part of how you grow up and the conversations that you're having um in your civics class as it relates to like okay what we're seeing now versus what we saw then um what are the similarities is the rise of um neo-nazis similar now as it was then what factors were contributing to um, the rise of adolf hitler at the time and and what are we seeing now what sort of ideologies are are people having um, that are consistent sort of over history and not even just in in germany but um in other countries as well certainly in the us um so yeah, you, you definitely learn about that. Um, I think when it comes to sports, uh, more so now than ever, you saw it, the Euro uh, Cup just happened and you saw what happened with the British um, soccer players and it's happened with German soccer players as well because we, we do have um, uh, black soccer players on our team now. And I think just a few days ago, the German Olympic team decided to stop playing the game because of uh, racial comments towards some of the players. and. Um, again, like you, you, you learn a lot about this stuff in the education system and it's important and it's at the forefront. Um, and yet there's not enough. We still, we still face it and we still face racism and there's a lot of work that needs to be done, uh, because interestingly enough, like when we say history repeat, it repeats itself. A lot of times it's based on ideologies and people just, thinking other people take stuff away from them. Um, and it's seemingly an easy way to do that through uh, pointing out religion or color or country of origin or whatever you may uh, want to point as a difference. And it's quite sad to see. Yeah. The reason why this is something I wanted to dive into with you is because my grandma's a Holocaust survivor. She lost brothers who were murdered. Um, she's from Hungary. And you know, being able to touch her and grow up with her and see her. And she didn't really talk about it much, but we knew. And um, you need to know the bad stuff that happened in the past to know what humans are capable of doing if they are in a system that creates certain things. And we all need to be vigilant to what humans are capable of doing in a negative way, just like we need to be optimistic about what humans are able to do in a positive way. And to me, we can have, we're having this conversation, we can have it in person, we can have it over Zoom, but I think it's an incredible thing that your, you know, family or whatever their relationship and experience was in Germany and everyone had different experiences, obviously as Germans. And then my grandma had her experience and like 
we can try to understand that they're all people that made these bad decisions and there are people that make good decisions. And we, none of us are immune. We're always like one step away from doing something really awful or something really beautiful. And every day we have to think intentionally about, are we going towards the light or toward the darkness in a different way than what we were talking about in the beginning of this conversation. And I just think it's important that people understand that and people know that Germans are no worse or any no better than anyone else in our world. And look, I think we saw it with the US Capitol, what can happen pretty quickly if group think and group experiences gets out of control. It doesn't take much. And that, you know, in the Jewish community, we all say never again, never again, never again. It's easy to say that. It's a whole nother thing to ensure that these things don't continue. And to go macro in a broader level, in a broader sense, there are all kinds of tragic things that happen based on systems all the time. And we need to constantly be challenging and thinking about how can we create systems that lead to open-minded, curious, empathetic discussions um, as a world, not just as a country. And we need to check each other when we're not doing that. We need to make sure that when it is time to step up and stand for something that we stand. So yeah, it's go ahead. Interesting that you mentioned that you mentioned something about we're always closer than we think we are to it. So growing up, I remember patriotism really wasn't a thing in Germany, like what I grew up and I'm 33 now. So, you know, the 90s. Um, and it's interesting because I when I moved to the US, obviously, you know, a country that's very patriotic and I came in, I'm like, I just don't quite get that. Like I, I, I knew US history enough to know that you know, not German level bad, but still not all glory and not everything is great here. And I was like, what? wow. Like and Annalie, not to, not to, but to point out also it's 2005 when you come over. Yeah. So for me in my lifetime, I wouldn't say that the U S was overly patriotic around where I lived until after September 11th. And there was a time there from 2001 um, until I don't know when, where, you had to be patriotic and it was, it changed drastically. And I'm not so sure for the worse, I think in a, in a way, 9-11 really unified this country and people, a lot of people stopped the BS and just started to say, Hey, there is a, a, a greater hatred that we just witnessed that we need to put an end to and cut all the other BS. Like we're all in this together and that is what hatred looks like. And and we're going to make sure that that doesn't happen and put our foot down. Um, so when you came over was an interesting time as well. Yeah. And it's, it was a, it was an interesting thing for me because it, it felt, I talked about tribes earlier. Right. And you, you felt like at the time I was like, wow, they're really in this together. And it's beautiful to see because again, I came from a country where that wasn't like, I wasn't proud to be German. I am now it's definitely changed. And maybe it's because I don't live there anymore. And I just, my perspective grew, but at the time, because my, you know, I was kind of drilled in this whole, like, this was our history and like Germans did some terrible things and all of those things kind of shape you like, oh, I'm not really super proud to say that I'm German. Um, and then fascinating enough, the world cup happened in Germany in 2006. And it really, for me is the major shift of when Germans became patriotic again and where it was okay that you, you know, displayed a German flag and you were proud to be German and it happened through soccer. And, um, then, you know, you kind of fast forward and everybody's celebrating it perhaps a little bit more than they would have in years before. And then um, I'm not even sure what year, maybe like around 
2015 or so um, when we had re-elections and um, the AFD, which is sort of the very conservative anti-immigration, um, more neo-Nazi direction party, all of a sudden went from like very, very, very small percent of support to 15%, I think. And um, I remember being in the US and calling my dad and going, what is going on? Like, we know better. Like we grew up being drilled about like that, that can never happen again. Like we've seen where it's gone. We've seen where this ideology has taken us and how much we've hurt other people. Like, why are people supportive of that kind of mindset? I, I could not grasp this. I'm like, we just know better. And so, like I said, you know, Germany has reverted a little bit into, um, into that type of mindset. Uh, and it happened because um, of, of immig immigration problems in, in Germany. Um, and it's really, it's horrible to see because again, it's history, but it isn't that far, far away. It's interesting because in this country, we just had July 4th and then uh, Independence Day. And then we had Juneteenth, which was also being celebrated. And for me, at least, this is pretty clear, which is I'm proud to be an American. No question. I feel privileged to be born here. I think there are all kinds of amazing opportunities that have been presented to me because I've been born in this country as opposed to other countries. And I'm proud of it. And I'm proud of what we stand for. And some of our history, I'm not proud of like those two things are both true. And I don't, I don't really see a conflating of those two things. I imagine for Germans, it's like, you can be proud of being a German while acknowledging that some of our past is ugly. And we, because we're proud to be German, we need to ensure that we don't do it again. And same thing for our country. It's like, yeah, we have some amazing opportunities and, and possibilities are endless when you're in this country and not necessarily for everybody. And how can we make sure that we stand for what we really believe in and what our forefathers really intended um, and call to when maybe there was some hypocritical stuff that went on in this country and continues in our country. And I'm not calling apples to apples on any of this stuff, but I think to me, like, because I'm patriotic, I, we have an obligation to make this country as damn good as we possibly can. Um, so I, I, I love talking about this with you because I think there's so much to be learned from your country, uh, both countries, I should say, since it's, you're, you're now German American or however you want to splice that. And I think you live at a really interesting intersection, given that half of your time has been spent in one place and another half has been spent somewhere else. I think there is an amazing opportunity for people to learn from you about culture and how, how a country and a, a tribe, so to speak, can impact the people that exist within that tribe. Mm -hmm. It's really beautiful in how, in how you um, describe that, this idea of like, you can be proud where you're coming from, and you can be proud of um, what it's provided you and who it's made you. And at the same time, when you have the right perspective, and you get perspective by just learning about it and being really open minded and looking at the hard stuff, right? Um, and then taking that and saying, okay, I'm proud, but I also know where this should go next. And not to equate it to the same thing, but to me, an organization needs to do the, do the exact same. The Philadelphia 76ers have a rich tradition in history, and 
they need to figure out, well, how can we be better? How can we improve? How can, like, like every sports organization should be acknowledging their history while saying, how do we make this thing better so that 20 years from now, they look back at this time and they say, wow, they were really transcendent with how they set this organization forward. And same thing in business. Like if you have an amazing business that has done really, really well, if you just stay complacent with where you're at, you're going to die. You're not going to exist. We all have to innovate and get better and find ways to do things differently while acknowledging that we all stand on the shoulders of great women and great men. And those are those multiple truths really exist for you. You came over at 16. When we chatted, one thing that stood out, you said, I was only supposed to be here for a year. I was, I think, an exchange student. And you also were fast. You, you ran track. Um, so talk about being an athlete coming over here for high school and the decision to stay and, and to really become an American, so to speak. Yeah, it's you're right. I was only supposed to stay for a year. And I think if you'd ask my mom, she would tell you, yes, I would have never let her leave if that wouldn't have been the case. But yeah, so I came over here at 16 um, and I did a foreign exchange student year. So I lived with a family. I went to high school. I ran all three sports. You know, I did cross country and I uh, played basketball and then I did track and I just loved it. Like I loved it. It was so different. Like in Germany, I, you know, I grew up around sports. Like I went to every soccer game that you can possibly imagine with my uncle. My dad took me on countless skiing vacations. My mom um, put me into track. My sister and I played tennis our entire life. Like I grew up in a sports family. So sports had always been important to me. All sports, like play any sport, just, you know, play sports. And like growing up were girls encouraged to play sports or was there any difference between boys and girls? No, definitely. They were definitely encouraged. And my dad is going to not be thrilled when I say this. It was really the only rule I had in my household was like, please don't play soccer. And um, that's not to say that he really probably would have let me, but at the time women's soccer in Germany was good, but it, in where I grew up really wasn't a thing. And my dad's like, now nah, you can play all the sports. Please don't play soccer. And he loves soccer. Um, it was just like, that's the one where he's like, no. And it was for silly reasons that I probably can't mention, but, um, so yes, we were encouraged, um, play any sport that you want. Um, I, you know, because I played sport, I play, played a lot of sports with boys. I was always around the guys and, and, um, kind of got tough because of that. So, um, yeah, that sports were just a thing everybody does at club sports you know it's not associated with the school so you play your sport a lot longer I feel like than you do here like even like my parents played tennis when I was little and my parents were like 30 40 50 so they I just grew up around sports because people constantly play sports it's, it's all recreational like fun golf tennis you name it so swimming um skiing uh so for me sports were an important factor and then when I came to the U.S which is one of the most, you know, fascinating sports countries in the world and some of the best athletes in virtually any sport, except soccer. Um, We're working on that. We're working on that. <laughs> I hope you don't. I tell that, I say that all the time. I'm like, please don't let them really figure it out in soccer because they'll be really good when they do. Well, you know, so you know, we're recording this with the U.S. basketball team struggling a little bit. So <laughs> look, I, we had Greg Berhalter on the podcast, the U.S. men's uh, national team soccer coach and, um, look, they're coming. They are coming. It's, I'm really excited about it. Cause I think it's a beautiful game and I think we're, we're just getting started, but yeah, I think the world as a whole is just becoming more similar because you have athletes 
playing all these sports kind of everywhere. I think it's, it's really cool, but I don't know if we'll ever reach Germany soccer. That's a high bar there, but we are. The talent uh, pool here is really good though. Like that's just it. You know, the talent for athletes in this country is so crazy that, I mean, I really pray that you don't reach the level of soccer in Germany and Germany. Um, but you have to also think that, you know, in, in Germany, soccer is really the end all be all. And it's just like when you are a boy and now even as a girl, like you play soccer. So there's no negotiating. Everybody's into it. It's like rule number one. We all love soccer. But you so, came over, you came over and it was track cross country and basketball, not yeah, soccer, no, not no soccer. soccer for you. No, no soccer for me. And, um, it was great. You know, I stayed uh, as a foreign exchange student for a year and I loved it. And I was really fascinated by this idea of like sports and school being together. And um, I was an okay student in Germany. And then I came here and a lot of what everybody was teaching me is that, you know, if you want to be a college athlete, you also have to be good at school. And I was like, oh, interesting. I just went to school to be social. So I guess I should start studying. So I became actually a good student because of American sports and the way the system works. And then um, I went back home for a few months and I was like, I don't, I've grown so much, you know, when you grow, when you leave your home and your family at 16 and you go to a place that you don't really speak the language other than what you've learned on MTV, then you kind of have to figure it out. So I grew a lot. I went back home and everybody was kind of the same, not to their fault. It's just what happens. And I was like, I got to go back. I want to go back. And so I came back to the States and, um, started college and ran track at my college. It was a small division two school, Winona State University. So it really was, you know, I was never going to make money doing like playing sports, but I just loved it. It was part of who I was. And um, I got to do it for a few more years and it was awesome. What was uh, your mom's reaction when you said you wanted to come to college in the U.S.? Well, I'll be honest, when I first came back from the state, so I'd finished my year, I flew back home, I got off the plane. When I saw my mom, the first thing I said was, I'm going to go back. I didn't say hello. I didn't say, it's, I'm so glad to be back home. I mean, it was devastating for my mom. I should apologize like every single day of my life for that reaction because she was so sad to see me go for a year. And at that point in time, you know, like FaceTime wasn't a thing. Like you Skyped with people, but it was still dial up internet. So it took forever. Um, so I didn't talk to my parents all that much in that year. And then I come back and I'm 16, I'm the youngest. And I'm like, by the way, mom, I'm moving back to the States, like far away. Like, thanks so much for everything, but I'm going to go. Um, so that wasn't the most kind way to tell my parents that, but they were really, I think in the beginning, my dad was like, yeah, she's definitely going back. My mom was more like, she'll get acclimated again. She'll be around her friends. Like everything will be fine. And they learned very quickly. I think after about six weeks, my parents and I had a serious conversation about what that could look like because, you know, in Germany, you don't pay for college. Like your parents don't have to save money to send you to college. So, and I was like, I'm going to go to the States can you guys pay for this? <laughs> There's so, the kicker. Like, Ugh, and my dad's like, what? Um, so yeah, we figured it out. So they knew very quickly, but my dad has always been really supportive. My mom has too. So they knew that ultimately once I made up my mind, there was no talking me out of it. And then it was just, they were really supportive parents. I'm really grateful. And so you go and you run track and you have this identity crisis occur where you get hurt <laughs> and then what? It's like, so walk us through the injury and how that impacted your college experience? Mm -hmm. So I had kind of dealt with injuries for a little bit, even in Germany, you know, like you get when you are, I was a jumper. So I like did high jump and triple jump and triple jump is a beautiful event, but it is also one of the most brutal as 
it relates to like impact on your body, especially your joints. So like your hips, your knees, your ankles, you feel that like, that's a lot in, um, I guess I probably didn't lift enough when I was uh, growing up. So my body just wasn't really prepared for all of that. So I'd had like little tweaks here and there. And then um, running track in college, they just kind of progressively got worse, like to a point where it's just like, I'm in a lot of pain and I'd compete and it'd get worse. And then I'd sit out for a few and try to come back. And it just, it never, it just, it kept getting aggravated, I guess. And at some point I was like, all right, listen, this is, I love this. Obviously I, I love being around my teammates and um, I like competing and it's given me a lot of friends and um, it makes school more fun because you have another, you know, something other than studying as to why you're at a college and, but this isn't going to work. Like, it's not fun when you're injured, you're not performing at your best. And then it just becomes frustrating. And so I was like, okay, I know what I want to do in life, which at that point in time, I wanted to be a foreign news correspondent. Um, maybe I'll just focus on that. So I told, I went to my coach and I was like, Hey, I think, um, I'm going to stop competing I'm just going to focus on school. And he's like, okay. Um, and I think it maybe took like meh, three days, five days. And I was like, Ugh, I don't like this. Like I no longer have that support system. I'm like, yes, I obviously made friends and we also live together and whatnot, but it also was strange no longer going to practice. And it was weird no longer being able to say like, oh, I'm an athlete here. I'm a student athlete. And so for a while, I was like, okay, throw yourself into something else Do like focus on school. And that worked for a while. But at the same time, there's a lot of benefits that come along with being an athlete, especially when you're at a university. And even as, you know, a track and field athlete, not the traditional, you know, big shot football players or uh, basketball players. And so it starts to really eat at you. And I, again, I had something else to focus on and I had a good support system. My parents were supportive. Like my boyfriend at the time played um, football. And so I was still involved a lot, but then I also, you know, hung out with my friends that were on the track team or played other sports and hung out with my boyfriend's um, teammates that got injured a lot playing football because, you know, that's just what happens when you play football. And all of a sudden I just realized like this is interesting to me. We all kind of live this athlete life. And whether you are in high school or at a division three, two, one school, there's something about it, like something that's different than the general population, so to speak. And then when it's done, you have to adjust to what that life looks like, where you no longer are an athlete. And when you're an athlete, everybody in a small way or another caters to you in a sense, like there's something about that, right? And when you don't have that, it's like, ooh, now what? And there's so much support for student athletes in college, so much, right? Like somebody helps you with making your schedule. Somebody tells you when to eat. Somebody tells you how much you should weigh or not weigh. Somebody tells you when to work out, when to get up, how much sleep you need to have, uh, what class to take, what professor to take it from, um, when to travel, when not to travel. It, everything is scheduled for you and everything is sort of put in place and then you don't have that anymore and you're like oh now I have to figure it out and I knew that if I couldn't figure it out if I felt like all of a sudden no one is there to really catch you at all times then other got other people especially men are going to feel that athletes and I was like I want to change that I want to really look into how we can better support transitioning athletes at at my school division two level so I started working with our athletic department fairly quickly and um, again, kind of pitched it 
uh, as a, hey, I, I want to help athletes kind of figure this out, transition into college. There's a lot that I didn't know growing up in Germany about going to college and transitioning out because of injury or because they're done playing. So um, I started working in college athletics because of that, because of my own injury, because of my own experiences. And um, yeah, long story long. You mentioned transitions. What's key to a successful transition? Um, a good support system, an exit strategy. And that's easy to say, right? Um, when I say exit strategy, in an ideal world, every athlete kind of has this long career And as you are having this career, you prepare yourself incrementally about like what life is going to be like when you're done playing or competing. So it's kind of like if you're picturing a highway, it's like merging off the exit, right? Unfortunately, for a lot of us, that doesn't happen. Like it's more like a heart right turn, forgot there was an exit, like I'm about to crash, but let me make it. That's really what it's more like for most of us. It's because of injuries. It's because... A lot of times we're a little bit delusional in our own abilities and we might think like, oh, I could definitely play in the NBA for 15, 20 years. Obviously, that's not realistic. I could definitely play in the NFL for a long term or I'm definitely making the team and I'm making it through cuts. You don't even think and part of it is like self-preservation. You have to have that confidence in your ability, but it also can backfire when it comes to transitions. And so, yes, in an ideal world, it's like having a good support system, having a plan on what that looks like. And that's not always achievable, but then finding your purpose in something other than sports. And that's hard. And I think it's not even athletes. We all do this. I'm sure you do this as well. We're really passionate about what we do, right? That's why we're good at what we're doing because we put our eggs in that basket. And sometimes it's really hard to think beyond that. Like I struggle with that even now as I, as I work in this environment. Like when people ask me like, what do you do other than work? I'm like, nothing. Like this is my life really. And I love it. I wouldn't change it for the world. And at the same time as I teach my athletes all the time to diversify, to like prepare for what happens when you're no longer doing this, when you're not, your entire identity is sports. Um, but I think that's a very American trade, by the way, to um, be so career driven and focused, whether you're an athlete or working in a corporate environment, like we are all like so strong-minded about making a career and making money and achieving success. We a lot of times forget about how we can nurture our other needs, our other passions and purposes. Yeah, there's a lot there. And I'm going to give everybody a quick summary of what you do transition-wise in the journey. You get a master's in sports management, you get a PhD in journalism and communications. You get these letters next to your name that are valued in our country. But there's something else that I think is more interesting than, than the letters, which is what you just hit on. To me, yes, at, in American culture, we're very good at focusing on our resume. And David Brooks, who wrote a, the book, The Road to Character, talks about resume and eulogy and how Americans, we, we tend to be very focused on the resume. And yet your resume is not what they talk about at your eulogy. They talk about who are you? And my last conversation last week was with Chris Singleton. Uh, Quick summary of Chris. His mom was shot in the Charleston church and murdered um, in that awful shooting in 2015. And Chris was, became a college baseball player and actually got drafted by the Chicago Cubs. But today Chris goes around the world uh, talking about, 
empathy and diversity and he'd be an interesting person for you to connect with. I think he spoke to the Washington wizards and um, at any rate, Chris and I started talking about our mission transcends what we do for a living. And we often think that our mission is just about what we do for a living. But if you're really clear on your mission and why you do what you do, it doesn't necessarily have to be what you do for a living. It can be, you can unite the two, but it doesn't have to be. So him, if he was a professional baseball player, professional speaker, his mission was probably still going to be the same regardless. And then I even think underneath our mission or why we do what we do, we have values and our values drive how we show up in the world. And so one of the things I do with my clients is I get them really clear on what their values are and really clear on their mission personally. And then we think about, all right, well, what do you, how do you show up professionally? And where is there overlap and where might there not be overlap? And perhaps you can get some of that mission in your church, or you can get it in a nonprofit, or you can get it in your household. I mean, like there's so many other ways that you can live that mission. And it's not for me to tell someone how they should or they shouldn't do. Um, the work that you do today, you are embedded in an organization. You are with these players and this team and this culture and this ecosystem. How does mission play in the work that you're doing and, and how does it show itself? Mm -hmm. Interesting question. I think that's uh, the mission thing and values comes up a lot in sports when we go through transitions, right? Whether it's, you know, you change a head coach or front office changes and just the way sports are nowadays, there is a lot of change. You know, we've seen it at the Sixers a lot and I've seen it at the Raiders where I was before this quite a bit. So it's never changing. This is like an environment that is very transactional in a sense. You see it with players in and out, new people, new faces. And so sometimes it's really, really, really difficult to get a culture. I think there are very few teams where you can definitely like say and pinpoint, they have a certain culture, they have a certain mission and you know exactly what their values are. And most of those teams are teams that have had consistency and we're allowed to kind of build that. Like you look at the Spurs, for example, um, or the Patriots um, a while back. Like you just kind of, they had something and you knew it, you could pinpoint it. And in a lot of organizations, you don't necessarily get afforded that. And so, um, but you work towards it. Again, I'm super, super grateful to work um, in this environment because Elton Brand is tremendous and he gets it and um wants to make the environment better and like is having us focus on like okay what do we actually want to achieve how do we want to be innovative what is our mission and not in like the what's our mission statement way you know I think there's a big difference between like let's come up with a mission statement but then also what is our mission are we actually doing it is it just words and so for me, in, in the role that I have, it's like, yes, this is about the team. This is about the organization. And at the same time, I also work with all of our players and they are part of this team. So some of this aligns, but they also have other things that they've got going on. And it's really important that they find their way. They find their mission, their goals, how they want to use their platforms. We talked about social justice earlier, how they want to leverage their environment, how they want to leverage the NFL or the NBA and their time here. And so I love that you do this with your client, that you sit down with them and you have them really think because A, I think that's an exercise all of us could use. And it's an exercise that maybe we could use and repeat quite often because it changes. Um, 
but having sort of a, a compass, I think of like a mission and values as a guiding compass because the the context changes, right? Like for me, it was the NFL and now it's the NBA. Um, my mission is still the same. It's a different environment, but my mission in that sense is still very similar. What I, my core values are is similar. Um, it's changed minimally over the Annalie, what are the values in the mission for you? How do you, how do you think about it for yourself? My main mission is to serve others. And I know that sounds cheesy, um, but in, in a lot of ways, the when I feel like I've made the most impact is when I see people for who they are and I give them a chance to be just that. They don't have to act in a certain way around me. I meet them where they are and we'll figure it out together. And we find a mission, a drive, a passion, a, a goal, and we get there together. And um, that to me is my goal is to make our team better and our organization better and um, I place high value on things like empathy and trust and, and communication, meaningful communication, tough conversations. Um, but the relationships that we form, that's what's important to me. I personally think when we have that foundation, we win games. So to me, that is important. Yes, I still want to win a championship. And yes, of course, I want our organization to, to sell out and do all of those things like that that are important to keep this company running and to make our fans happy and whatnot. But to me, the, the fundamentals of getting us there is, is all of us in this together. There's a, a level of, of trust and commitment in, in resilience in the process. And I use the process now, which I'm sure everybody at the Sixers will love that I said that, but <laughs> um, not even intentionally. You, you mentioned working with the Raiders and, and the Sixers and that it, it can be very transactional. People that are there one day are gone the next. And then you're talking about building relationships being core to the work that you do. How do you go about building great relationships in an environment that, that tends to often be transactional? So I'll start by telling you this quick story. My first year at the Raiders, um, when we got through training camp, so I'd started like in the off season, we got through OTAs and then went to training camp in Napa and it was amazing. This was my first class, you know, um, we had 30 some rookies, which is crazy. Um, and you had a team full of 90 players and then a ton of staff. And then we go through summer or we go through training camp and then we start cutting back from 90 to 75 and 75 to 53. And I remember on the morning of the first round of cuts, um, I got a list that said this was what was going to happen. And a lot of the people that were on that list were guys that I was pretty close to because we'd spend a lot of time together, you know, like you, you, they're rookies. Most of them are, you know, young players. So you spend a ton of time with them because you're just trying to help them, help have them navigate their new life in the NFL. But then you're also in training camp and training camp for us was five weeks in Napa, California, all of us staying in the same hotel. So like morning to night, you're around them, you eat every meal together. And then you see this list and you're like, oh, wow, that person's dream is ending. And sure, a few of them got opportunities elsewhere, but for a lot of them, that was it. And it reminded me so deeply of what that feeling was that I had when I walked away from sports and like how it affected me. And I was like, this is going to be 10 times worse for these kids. And it crushed me. I mean, I remember sitting in my office and just crying. And so my boss walks by and he's um, Lamont Winston, who'd been in the NFL for a really long time in the player engagement space. He's amazing. And he was like, okay, let's talk, 
talked us through. So him and I talked through this. He's like, I love that your heart is in this. You have to be strong for the guys. They, we will make a plan for each of them. They'll be fine. They'll be yours forever. Um, they'll be in touch with you for as long as you let them. All of those things, like, don't take this so hard. Another person in our organization comes by and kind of saw me having a hard time. And he goes, wow, uh, don't worry. In about a year from now, you won't even care anymore. You'll toughen no. up in a sense that this will never affect you again. And I was like, wait, what? So it took me a minute and he said some other things. And I was like, hey, I'm going to be honest. Maybe you're right because you've been doing this for 20 years in the NFL. And maybe I am taking this too hard. But I promise you, I'm not going to do this job when this no longer affects me. I will not do this. Like if, if I no longer care how this is going to affect an athlete, then I'm in the wrong job because my job is not the X's and O's. My job is to make sure that they're okay and they're okay today to play, but they're also okay tomorrow to live a life separate from athletics. So um, that was my sort of introduction to the highly transactional environment. And I will tell you, it does get slightly better, right? You get used to it being a transactional um, environment. And you also have success stories of, you know, guys getting cut from your team and then really, really thriving in another team. And I also just now know from just personal experience that you can still help them, even though they're no longer in your team. And so um, I think keeping that at the forefront and that the relationships are really what matters, that's, that's helped me through what this environment is like and how harsh it can sometimes feel and be. So for me, when you ask, how do you build relationships? It's twofold, threefold, maybe like one is time, like being allowed to spend time with people and really getting to know them and investing in them. That is important to me. And when I say them, I don't even just mean the athlete. It's like, who are their parents? They're the people that they surround themselves with. All of that is important. Um, and then sometimes there's incidents and that's not really the way you want to build trust, but sometimes that just happens, right? Bad stuff happen. And when they come to you, you have to execute, you have to be prepared and you have to have a plan game plan and you have to be there. And that can be, you know, big things or small things. You just have to be there and present and not be one of the people that only cheers for them on Sunday or only cheers for them at tip off. Like you're the one that's there when they drop a pass, when they miss their free throws, when they are having a bad day. Like, I want to be that person. I don't want to be the person that's like, yo, high five. You, did, you had a great game today. I want to be the person that's there when they had a terrible game where everybody else just kind of avoids them. And that to me has always felt like the most, um, the best way for me to build relationships in, in an authentic way. You slid in a little bit earlier that, you know, I work for this team too. I, I have some of the same challenges of being on and my identity being connected to the team and wins and losses. You sort of slid that in. And so if your mission is to serve others, how do you make sure that you're good so that you're in a position to serve others? Mm -hmm. So I was, I kind of thought you were going to ask me this question. And I thought about this long and hard because I do, you know, I think my entire career, I've been trying to like live a pretty structured life and like take care of myself and I work out and I meditate and I do all of those things. And um, I spend a lot of time with players and, and even staff, to be quite honest. And we talk about 
um, how they can form their habits, where they might need help. Mental health is a really important you know, area of topic in, in player development and player engagement. And for the longest time, I was like, well, I do this as a job, so I don't really need help from somebody. I, I got this, like I know all of the things. And um, so I started seeing a therapist very recently, like maybe a year ago, like in the middle of the pandemic. And it's not something, especially as a German person, that you would ever say out loud. Like Germans, very private, like definitely don't tell people that you're seeing a therapist. Like it's just not a thing that you do. And I love that about Americans because everybody here is like, yeah, I definitely got a therapist. It's great. So not, thought, a, not everybody, but there's not a everybody, but a lot of people, like way more than in Germany, I'll tell you. So for me, having made that transition is really, really, really helped me. And again, it's, I learn a lot from my therapist, but the reason why I didn't do it for the longest time was I'm like, what is that person going to tell me that I don't already know? Not that I know so much, but again, like my whole job is to take care of other people and to have them figure it out and like assure them that their anxieties and fears and insecurities are, are normal and a part of it. And here's how we can navigate it. But I never did it. And I felt a little bit phony at some point because I'm like, man, I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm talking to them about all this stuff. I don't even work on myself like that. So I was like, all right, you got to do this. So I now do a lot of self-work. <laughs> so yes, I'm sharing that on a podcast, which is kind of crazy now. But um, yeah, it's an important piece of, of getting right for me is exercise, taking care of myself mentally, continuing to grow um, and keeping, you know, the people that have supported me really close by for some much needed perspective. You said before that you... Um spend a lot of time serving other people and focus on serving other people. And here you are now saying, okay, I got to take care of myself first, but I don't know if I need to see a therapist. I already know about me. What, am, what are they going to tell me that I don't already know? Mm-hmm. Well, I think you said you started about a year ago. Mm-hmm. What have you learned about yourself that maybe you didn't know before? Or what have you learned or how have you grown through that experience? Mm-hmm. I think as a female in this environment, a lot of times you are um, taught, not necessarily outwardly taught, like no one tells you like, oh, you have to be super tough and no emotions and just power through everything. Um, You have to be cold, all of those things. I think that kind of comes with that territory. And so as I've progressed in my career, I've kind of felt that was like a badge of honor, this like, I can hang in the boys club and I can um, excel in it and I'm doing it by being tough, by um, not being sensitive, by not caring that much about emotions, um, not letting emotions get to me, not showing emotions and kind of suppressing a lot of the feels and just like using my brain. And Listen, in large parts, it's gotten me to where I am. So it's a good thing. But in the process, you also lose a little bit who you are at your core. And so I think my therapist keeps telling me to, you know, don't do that. Like you are so hyper focused on intellectualizing everything that you forget about like, how does that feel? How did that make you feel? How do you think that made other people feel? And again, I'm super empathetic. So like for other people, like I'm always like concerned about their feelings. For me, I'm like, let's not worry about that. Let's just solve the problem. 
So um, I've, I've done a lot of work in that space, um, I'll be honest. So I've learned a ton. Um, and there's definitely moments where I sit there and I'm like, oh, yeah, yep, mm -hmm, okay. Probably should have known that. And yeah, it makes sense, but I, I don't know all the things turns out. It's so interesting as I'm hearing you, I'm just going back to the beginning of this conversation. We were talking about culture and, and German culture and American culture. There are a couple of things that I'm threading together and connecting for me. Maybe this will be helpful for you. If not, throw it in the garbage can. But, you know, I think about that German soccer team that won the World Cup a few years ago, and they were a team and they were selfless. And it really wasn't about the individual. And that's why they were able to potentially beat teams that had individual superstars, um, you know, on them. And so my view is like, okay, there is this element of selflessness and team and, um, that is inside of you that might be somewhat German. And, and then there's a side of you that is, um, also got, Hey, we don't talk about feelings. We don't see the therapist. Like that part of you is very German. Mm -hmm. And then there's this other piece of you that also is somewhat American, which is individualistic and driven and change the world. And perhaps that part is more vulnerable and willing to, um, be open to seeing a therapist. And here you are half and half of your life. And perhaps you're just starting to blend the best of the German part of you and the best of the American part of you. And by the way, at 33 years old, damn, that, that's actually like pretty early to figure out that I can blend these different pieces. I mean, I know I work with people that are 53 that are trying to figure out how to blend those two pieces. And so, you know, I, I think it's an interesting time for you because I'm a blender. I just believe in blending different things. I think the answer is very rarely one thing. I think it often is a combination. Mm -hmm. And I, I look at you and I listen to you and I hear you and I hear someone who's starting to recognize, wow, what got me here won't necessarily get me there. But I also appreciate what got me here. I appreciate where I've been, but I'm not sure I want to continue to go there. And I want to make sure that when I go there, I don't lose this other piece of me that got me here. And I think all of us in some way are in transition in that regard. And we're trying to figure out what got me here was valuable. What was not, where do I want to shift or adjust? And then where do I see myself going? Not destination wise necessarily. It can be, but as far as how I show up in the universe. So I know I just did a lot of talking. What, is resonating with you as I start to connect these dots as, as I listen to you. I love all of what you just said. In all honesty, I kind of wish, I, I'm hoping we obviously taped this, so I'm going to re-listen to this. Um, but this idea of blending different things, I think we see it so much in, in, in our athletes of, you know, you work your entire life to get to the MBA and then you're there. And now it's about like, okay, you got here. Your talent might've gotten you here. Your hard work might've gotten you here. But like now it's about what keeps you here and not even what keeps you here, but what gets you to be an all-star? What gets you to win a championship? It's never like people always say like, oh, you made it. And they say it to our players, right? Oh, you made it. You're in the NBA. You made it. You are an all-star. You made it because we made the playoffs. You made it because you have a hundred million dollars in your bank. They say to me, you made it. You're a VP at an NBA team. And it's like, yeah, you, it's exciting. I achieved something, but it's also no longer enough, right? You're just like, cool, like I did something, but now what's next? And that drive, I think, is especially with athletes at high 
achievers in in other industries as well it's never enough there's always that itch for something else but as you kind of grow older and you get a little bit more perspective you recognize like all right there's different things I need to do to get to different places different experiences have shaped me in different ways now and so what you just said what got me here might not necessarily propel me to my next um what I'm really hoping to blend a little bit more in my German side is being more present. I think as um, Americans, we, we constantly are like, what's next, what ne what's next, what's next? We tend to forget about really enjoying the moment. I love about German culture is that like everybody works really hard and they're really driven and focused at work, but then they, without a doubt, take like three, four, five weeks of vacation. And when I say vacation, I mean, not checking your phone every day, impossible for me, being with your family or friends and like enjoying life, eating good food, traveling, seeing different cultures. I want to get to that place. I want that part of my German heritage to come out a little bit more, like the being present part and enjoying life for what it is, because we can work all we want and we can have all the things that we want. And it's great. It's amazing. But we also have to live. And I think that's the piece where I'm slowly getting to now as I get a little bit older is the importance of that. So I'm hoping to blend that. It's terrific. You said the word enough three times in the last minute or two. That word is something that I've been thinking a lot about. And you're right. High achievers, like they're usually never complacent and they're always trying to get better and grow and like, hey, look, Ma, I made it. Like that song, like, all right, when, when you're saying I made it, by the way, no one has to hear me sing ever again, but that idea of I made it suggests that you're done. And if you have that approach in elite athletics, you're done because you didn't make, you're going to be out if you take that approach and you don't try to grow and develop and get better. So I understand this notion of becoming and growing and getting better. And when you're talking about the present, the being is so damn valuable as well. And that I think of enough as well. I am enough. I'm enough. And my skills aren't enough. Mm -hmm. My ability to grow, I still have room to grow. I'm not done there. Like I can still grow and learn while understanding that I am enough. Right. And and too often high achievers don't acknowledge that they're enough. And what do I mean by that? Just being there for your kid and just being there might be enough or your spouse or your boyfriend or your girlfriend, just showing up and being available might be enough or understanding that I don't have to always just become more. I can at some things just be like, you know what? That's good enough. Like I don't need to keep growing in that area. Like I can just be good there. And satisfaction and complacency are not the same thing. The issue is if we're constantly on this treadmill to become more and we're not enough, and we're not enough, we're not enough, we may never feel fulfilled. We may never feel satisfied. And in sports, this is a really tricky concept because we're always striving. You win a championship, go get another. You win an MVP, go get another. Like that striving is so valuable. 
in our society in America, that striving, that capitalistic mind, it's really valuable. And if you attach your identity to that, you're never going to feel fulfillment and satisfaction. And that is linked to happiness. And that is linked to living a meaningful life as well. So how can we hold both? How can we also understand that I am enough, but the thing isn't enough. I still have to grow at the thing and not coupling those two things together. And for me, that is like a massive, massive conversation and question that I'm asking myself. I love that. I could have listened to you talk about that concept and this, I am enough for hours. I, I truly think that is perhaps single-handedly one of the most eloquent ways I've ever heard anybody say this. And it's making me think of like how often we actually tell ourselves I am enough because I can speak for myself. I don't ever say that to myself. We're so hard on ourselves, right? And it's like you said, we're striving and striving and trying to achieve more. Sitting down and really being present and saying I am enough, but my skills aren't enough yet or whatever it may be is so powerful. But we're not taught that. Like no one ever teaches you that. But it's an important conversation to have. So now I'm curious because you clearly have had that conversation with yourself. What got you there? I do a lot of thinking and uh, you know, I've been in therapy. I've had coaches. I have a wife who has to listen to me on long drives, talk about stuff. I have a podcast, a big part of this podcast. Look, I'll just, we're, we're recording this right now. I do one of these a week. That's 50 a year. There's pressure to continue to find amazing people who I can learn with. We've now had on over 230 people. I mean, it's a lot of people. And so a part of you is like, hey, keep going, keep going, keep growing, keep, you know, keep, 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 keep. And that's not bad. Like, I don't want to get rid of that. To your point about looking the Raider executive in the eye and saying, I don't want to get rid of that. Like, I don't want to get rid of my drive and my desire to learn and grow. And I think it was over the July 4th weekend, you know, I have a newsletter. I didn't publish the newsletter over July 4th. And you know what? It's okay. No one, no one emailed me to say, Hey, where's the newsletter. And so if I skip a week on this podcast, you know what guys, we'll all be okay. And, and, and when I say skip, I don't even think it's skipping. It can be an intentional rest. It can be a decision that we don't need to constantly be doing things. I do believe in habits. I do believe in discipline. I think those things you mentioned exercise, like I need more of that in my life, to be honest. I'm not always the best at discipline and habits. You won't be an elite performer without them. I think they're essential. They're keystone. But for me, like I think about this a lot and I used to not shut down work until at least six o'clock. I would say I'm working till six. You know what? During the pandemic, my kids are here. If I'm done at 4.30, I have the autonomy to just go down and play with them. Like we have a hot tub in my backyard. I've been in the hot tub with them at 4.30 over the pandemic. I never did that in the decade of doing this work. So I think we have to be really thoughtful and intentional about what are those habits that we don't want to break because we, we, they're really valuable to us. And what are some things that you can let go of and that you don't necessarily need to do um, if they're not intentional. And that's why this podcast is called Intentional Performers because I kept interviewing people who were making intentional decisions about how they were showing up in the world. And for me, I think that is the key is like, if something's enough or not, well, are you wrestling with it? 
And if you're wrestling with it and you're making the decision that says, nope, I want to work out every single morning at 5 a.m., that's something that's intentional. And, and now that's a habit and I have the discipline. Cool. But we should pause to your point. Those five or six weeks, like actually when I came up with changing the name of this podcast, I was in Greece. I was just letting my mind wander. I was unplugged. And we went from changing this podcast to from beyond the surface, which was the name of it originally to intentional performers. And if you ask me, that's a much better name. And if I wasn't away with my wife looking out at the water, I don't think I would have done that. So to me, when we start to realize that we're enough, I actually think it sets us up to grow when we have our performance and to grow in these other areas of our life. We're recording this, you know, the Bucks are up 3-2 in the NBA Finals. And I'm watching Giannis, who has struggled. He's airballing free throws and physically been injured over this playoffs. And he just gave this amazing speech on being in the present. And I'm looking at this guy and I'm like, how does the world not love this dude? He came from nothing. He is humble as all hell. He's willing to keep shooting those threes, even though you're cringing. And he's playing his ass off. And by the way, he does it while being him and smiling and I'm watching him and I'm inspired by that because I think he's come to an understanding that he is enough, but he's still striving for greatness. And we saw LeBron go through this. I think LeBron, this is anecdotally, I didn't work with LeBron, but watching his career when he went to the heat, like he wasn't thinking that he would be enough unless he got those rings. And then I think part of him going back to Cleveland and, and sort of doing what he wants with the Lakers is this acknowledgement like, hey, I'm going to do me. And I look, I don't want him to go to the Lakers. I, I would rather him stay at Cleveland the entire time as a fan. But I admire that he's now taking control of his own life and saying that he's enough. And I watch him with his kids and how he's making an impact on the world and his mission is bigger than basketball. And I admire that. And so those are all things I've been talking for way too long that I think a lot about in sports to me is an example because we see athletes who strive, 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 but they don't look at themselves and say that they're enough. And it's a, it's a, it's a really tough go. I don't care how many millions you make. Like if you don't have that inner sense of peace and knowing that you're enough, you're going to be unsatisfied. And I think when you're not satisfied, you're not fulfilled. And when you're not fulfilled, it's really hard to have, happiness. And I think most of us want to feel happiness in our life. And that sense of happiness too, in today's world is interesting, right? Because we live, and I'm a big fan of social media, like I use it too much. And all of the things I'm really, I've been hooked on it for a long time. But at the same time, striving for something is constantly on your mind, right? Because you see it, you see, you have a direct comparison on your phone for other people and what they've achieved. And maybe they're younger, maybe they're prettier. Maybe they got to travel more. Maybe their job is better. They drive a bigger car. They have 10 cars. I only have one. It's this comparison, the constant um, reminder of like, there is more out there and I have to have more to be happier is perhaps the single biggest lie that we are telling ourselves. And again, it's, I, it's a still a work in progress for me um, as a, to remind myself of that. It, but at the same time, that balance of like, I want to continue to achieve, but I also want to be secure in who I am and what I have and that it is enough. We talked about enough. That's, that's the real key. 
I don't think we're special in that sense. I think that key to happiness and being enough has probably been a topic for people much longer ago and much smarter than us. But um, how profound to really sit here and listen to you speak on that and look at the examples, even just in the MBA world, where we can pinpoint it. And you mentioned Elton Brand. We had Elton on the podcast and he mentioned his rookie class looking at Richard Hamilton and seeing what he was doing every night. And if Richard dropped 20, Elton would say, I need to go at it in the gym and work on it. So comparison often gets a bad rap too, because it can help us grow and develop and learn. And we need competition to strive with, to bring out our best. So I don't think comparison is the issue. Like you can go on Instagram or Twitter and see where they're at. And if your first reaction is, jealousy or envy, like acknowledge that. Okay. Now understand that that is a trap. And if you continue to just let that be your whole source of motivation, you're going to be empty at some point. But if you want to use it in spurts, go ahead and use it in spurts. It's like when you're exercising, if you want to listen to heavy metal or a motivational speaker during that time, go ahead and use that during that time, but don't mistake that jolt of motivation for actual fuel for motivation throughout your entire career. And so we can be externally motivated and there's nothing wrong with that. We just need to pair that with an internal motivation and drive. And so we don't need to be anti-comparison. We just need to acknowledge what is our relationship with comparison and is it healthy or harmful? And that to me, that distinction often gets lost because we just say comparison is a thievery of joy okay, that's a cool quote. That sounds great. But show me an elite athlete who's not comparing themselves and, and using that, that litany test to see where they're at. They do. They just figure out other ways that also motivate them. It's not just that one thing. Mm-hmm. It's this idea of like constantly labeling thing as either good or bad. And instead of just sitting there and just letting it be, it's one of those things that I've perhaps learn in therapy about, you know, like you just talked about jealousy. And it's like, I used to say like, jealousy is a lazy emotion. It's a, it's, you don't need to be jealous. Like, what are you jealous about? It's unhelpful. And I think I've said that actually to my therapist and she's like, okay, you can say that rationally speaking, that might be true, but you're still going to feel it. So like, why don't we just feel it and then figure out why we're feeling it and then attack that. Like, how about we stop labeling it as being bad and just letting it be it and acknowledging it and naming it and then coming to some sort of conclusion. So this is the perfect tie back. So here we are. We've been chatting for an hour and 15 minutes and I've enjoyed all of it. And some people are probably listening to us and maybe they've stopped. Um, but this is, I think, interest, interesting to us. But some people may be listening to me like, wait a second, Raiders, where did we go here? She went from, you know, being a track college athlete. Uh, I mentioned she got her master's and her PhD in journalism. And she said earlier that she wanted to be, you know, a reporter. How did this whole thing even happen? So fill in the blanks for people so that they don't leave here today wondering like, what the heck, how did she end up with the Sixers, NFL, NBA? What the heck happened here? Um, Fill in the blanks for people so that they have your, your story and your journey. And hopefully they can be inspired by that as well. So you learn bits and pieces of it already, right? So I was a foreign exchange student that never went back. And then uh, ran college track, found my motivation to like help athletes. And then I started working in college athletics and um, got my master's degree and ended up getting my PhD because I just kind of knew I wanted to help, help athletes at the NFL level. But at the time, 
the people that were helping athletes were former players. And I don't think I would ever be a very good football player. So that wasn't going to work for me. And so I found a way, I was like, what can I contribute to an organization that maybe I just could set myself apart. And so I got my PhD because I wanted to learn more. I just like was fascinated by how athlete development, you know, at the time, very much in its infancy could really contribute to teams winning. And so I got a PhD really honestly, only because I wanted to work in the NFL and I needed something for people to stop and think like, okay, she's not a former player, but like, maybe there's something there. So um, I went to the university of Florida in large part because they had a great program, but also because they were one of the most elite college athletic departments in the country. And not even just in one sport, like across sports, they're just always good at everything. And so I wanted to work with athletes in football, in basketball, but also in gymnastics and track and lacrosse and sports that maybe other people wouldn't necessarily even think about. But I got exposed to so many different athletes and there's a lot of commonalities and a lot of differences. But I did all that to get the job in the NFL. And I was lucky when I um, finished my dissertation, I defended it um, within you know the first four months, I got connected to a few people in the NFL and eventually the Raiders were hiring for a player engagement position. And I interviewed and I got the job and moved to Oakland and spent three seasons with that team. Um, went through a coaching change with that team, went through a season that, you know, we were thinking we were Super Bowl bound. And then Derek Carr, our quarterback, had an injury. Um, and I got to work with amazing players, um, learned a ton from the good and the bad and the ugly to having tough conversations to what it's like to be, you know, with a with a team such rich in history, but also on a path to success again. Um, and I was really happy in the NFL. It was my dream job, right? I was like, I, this is everything I've worked for. And I'll never forget in September, of, like we had just started really our season. Somebody sent me the job posting for the Sixers VP of player development. I was like, hey, the Sixers are hiring a VP. Just thought you'd be interested in the job description. And I was like, I really don't. I mean, I like basketball, but I don't want to work in basketball. I love the NFL. Like this is my dream. But I was like, this could be really interesting. I could apply and I could just like learn from them. I could just like learn to see what they're thinking and doing. And maybe I can steal some things and bring them back to the Raiders. So I did. I applied <laughs> for the job. And Alex Rucker was the EVP at the time for the Sixers. Um, him and Alton had just started together as GM and EVP. He called me and we had a conversation just like you and I just it really wasn't an interview. It was a conversation about athletes and what I'd seen and growing up in Germany and international players and all of those things. And I was like, wow, this is really interesting. What the Sixers are trying to do is really, really special. So he flew me out for an interview and I met everybody here. And I was like in awe of just like how progressive of an organization it was. And um, I went to the game that night and had a job offer. And I was like, wait a second. I don't even want to work in the NBA. I, I, I just want to go back to Oakland and just like help the guys and, you know, win some games. And I was on the plane and I was devastated because I was like, oh, I'm about to make a really hard decision. Like I'm either going to turn down an opportunity of a lifetime to stay in what I had thought was my, my dream, or I'm going to take this, but in the process, lose everything that I'd worked for, like in the sense of like, this is what I knew and wanted for so long. So um, I got back to Oakland and I 
for like a week and a half, I was kind of debating. And I knew in my heart that I was going to take this opportunity at the Sixers. It was too much of a growth opportunity for me. But I literally went to some of our players at the Raiders and I was like, hey, listen, I got an incredible opportunity to work in the NBA, but I can't leave you guys in the middle of a season. And they sat in my office and they're like, are you insane? Like, we love you, but like, you need to go. Like, there's no chance we're letting you stay now. And so um, they were, you know, partially like, it was nice to have the endorsement by them that people that had known me and like knew what was important to me. I wanted to let them know I'm here. Like, if you're telling me you got to stay, I'll stay with you. And I ended up finishing the season with the Raiders, but I came to the Sixers and um, loved every moment of it. You know, it's different. It was so challenging. It's different than anything I'd ever done. I was all of a sudden managing people and not just players. And that in itself, we could probably talk about for another 35 minutes. It's just like managing people and how that is very, very different and hard and challenging and helps you grow in all kinds of ways. Um, But yeah, that's kind of my story. I went in unexpected ways and got really lucky along the way and had some incredible people supporting me, but yeah. I'm not as interested in this, but I think people listening would be more interested in this. So I'm just going to ask it. Walk us through your day to day. What does it look like being you? I'm sure you get asked that all the time. I, I, I don't care, but I think people might not be able to see what you do. So I think they might be curious about what, what it looks like in the day of Annalie. It's such a tough question because unlike any, I think any other job, even in sports, like the player development space can be so different from day to day, right? Like in even season to season, it changes. Like there were a lot of times when I started with the Sixers where so much of my day was spent managing my staff. And then in the process of trying to build relationships with our players and what that looked like was very different from one player to the other. You know, the young guys are very different than veterans and how you engage with them and interact with them. Um, but really, like I would say most of my day is spent building relationship and then navigating some sort of challenge and finding a solution to it. And so that's for players, but also for staff and the organization and constantly kind of thinking 10 steps ahead to to prepare for best case, worst case scenarios. And so it's hard for me to say like, hey, I get you know into the office at eight and then I spent the first six hours doing X and Y because it's different. And honestly, on any given day, it can completely change. And um, my, I would say the easiest way to describe it is like, I'm here as a resource for our players and staff to just get things done and like offer a perspective and be a resource for whatever it is they, their family, their ecosystem needs. So it can be, you know, trivial things in a sense of just mailing things out for them, but it's also tough conversations that no one perhaps wants to have with them or they are not prepared to have and I help them prepare to have those conversations um so it it honestly runs the gamut of of small to large things in um day-to-day to to like big time event things um but yeah it's a lot of managing staff and and helping them grow and developing them but also our players it's interesting I worked with a pro sports team and I met with one athlete who was a star on the team pretty regularly. And at the end of our meetings, I would just say, I've got your back. Mm -hmm. And he looked at me and he's like, you always say that. And I go, well, yeah, I've got your back. He goes, it's really nice. Like not everybody does. Mm -hmm. 
And it hit me. I was like, yeah, my job is to have these people's back. What you would call serving. Like I'm not here to trade them. I'm not here to cut them. I'm just here to make them be the best they can be. And to your point, if they do get traded or they do get cut, that's not necessarily the worst thing in the world either. Like it, it, a lot of times when people get fired, it leads to an opportunity. Um, or when you left the Raiders, mm-hmm. um, who knows who that was good for? Maybe it allowed someone else to come in and take your space and maybe create another opportunity for someone. So we don't know the ripple effect of our work, but I hope that people leave this conversation having a sense of understanding that you are someone who gets other people's back and you are someone who cares deeply about having their back. And, um, you know, I, I can tell you after this conversation, I've got your back. And um, if you need anything from me, you can always holler. And uh, next time you're in DC, I hope we can meet in person and, and break bread or grab a coffee and, and chat. Um, certainly I'll, I'll do that if I'm in Philadelphia. I now have way too many Philadelphia people that have been on this podcast coming from Washington, DC. Like I could, I feel pretty strongly in saying that, but um, I, look, this has been a blast. I feel like we could continue chatting for hours. I'm happy to do that with you when the mics are off, but um, thanks for all that you do for our world, for our society, for our, the bas- the basketball world. I'm a big NBA guy. And, and thanks for all the work you're doing in a league that I care deeply about. Um, and if people want to learn more about you, what you're up to, I know you're on Twitter, let people know where they can find you. Uh, and if they want to connect with you and follow your journey, as you continue to do what you do, where can they do that? Absolutely. I will provide you with some information, whether it's, you know, Twitter, email, um, wherever. Um, I'm, I'm so thankful when people reach out to me and having these types of conversations, there's, um, I'm really happy to do that. And again, learn from one another is one of my main things. And I talked about tribes. I'm super happy that you're now part of my tribe and like, let's make this tribe a little bit bigger. So if anybody has anything and any questions or just wants to chat, I'd love that. Perfect. So since Annalie didn't shine a light on where you can find her on Twitter, I'm going to do that for her. She, uh, I think still wants to be in the shadows a little bit. So she's on Twitter at it's me, Annalie. So it's I-T-S-M-E-A-N-N-E-L-I-E. So give her a follow on Twitter. Um, She's kissing a gator on her Twitter background. So if you're not a gator person, we had Becky Burley on the podcast. She's, you probably ran into her when you were at Florida. So we've had some gator people on the podcast, but um, you know, it's been great getting to know you. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson. You can connect with me there. LinkedIn is the other place that I like to play at Brian Levinson. Annalie, thank you again. And, uh, uh, you are an intentional performer. So I appreciate you sharing your experience, your journey, and, and how you think about the world. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. What I'm really hoping to blend a little bit more in my German side is being more present. I think as um, Americans, we we constantly are like, what's next, what's next, what's next, what's next? We tend to forget about really enjoying the moment. I love about German culture is that like everybody works really hard and they're really driven and focused at work. But then they, without a doubt, take like three, four, five weeks of vacation. And when I say vacation, I mean not checking your phone every day. Impossible for me being with your family or friends and like enjoying life, eating good food, traveling, seeing different cultures. I want to get to that place. I want that part of my German heritage 
to come out a little bit more like the being present part and enjoying life for what it is because we can work all we want and we can have all the things that we want and it's great it's amazing but we also have to live and I think that's the piece where I'm slowly getting to now as I get a little bit older is the importance of that so I'm hoping to blend that